Welcome to Mosaic, a podcast about theology and theologizing in Singapore, Asia, and beyond. Brought to you by Singapore Bible College. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mosaic. My name is Benita Lim, and together with Justin Lee, we will be your hosts for this podcast. Hey, everyone. So since the pandemic began, the Mosaic podcast team has been interviewing people online through Zoom. And we are especially excited for today's episode because this time we are recording this episode live in our swanky new SBC recording studio. Yeah, unfortunately, no <laughs> video for today. Maybe next time. Yes. So Justin and I are right now in the same room, breathing the same air as a very special person who happens to be on our shores. So it's our privilege to have in studio today, Mr. Lawrence Tong, the international director of one of the biggest mission organizations in the world, Operation Mobilization, or OM. Hello, Lawrence. Thank you for agreeing to come aboard. Hi. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So Lawrence is a Singaporean who is married to Susan and has two sons, Josh and Benji. Lawrence became OM's third international director in 2013, since its founding in 1957 by George Vera. Lawrence's journey with OM goes all the way back to 1974 when he visited the Logos when it sailed to Singapore. He joined the ministry team in 1978 on the Dulos before becoming the international director of OM. Lawrence has served on the board of OM Singapore as OM country leader for Taiwan, as director of Logos 2, and in financial development with the OM Ships USA office in Florence, South Carolina. Lawrence also led the fast-growing work of OM in China with a significant focus on welfare and agricultural programs, which he and a team of local partners established in the Sichuan region following the earthquake of 2008. Well, for me, I've had the privilege of personally knowing Lawrence and his family. I was his son's youth leader once upon a time, fun fact. And so Uncle Lawrence, us once youths, affectionately call him. Uh, he's a member of my home church here in Singapore and he's often invited to preach on missions. And I'm not sure if you know this, Uncle Lawrence, but you were definitely one of the adults in church who inspired me as a young person to always be on the lookout for God's mission in the world. Uncle Lawrence, would you like to say a few words to greet our listeners? Thank you so much for having me here. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to speak and share some of my thoughts on certain issues. And even more special is to be able to work with you, Benita, and to meet you, Justin. Yeah, it's special, and, and I'm grateful. So maybe to start us off, here's a question to help us get to know you better. So what is something that you like to do to unwind from work? I thought about that quite a bit, and I think in the end I narrowed down to Sudoku. I like doing that, a crossword puzzle, reading some books. Those are things I do to release the tension or to ease the stress. But if I have the time and in the right place, I love to go for long walks, long, long walks. I think these are all things that, that we like as well, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you like logic puzzles, I actually have a lot of uh, recommendations I can give you. Okay, for... we can talk about that yes, after the recording. <laughs> nice. I want to know some too. Great. Yeah. And, and I think something that I hope that our listeners will also get to hear are the stories of how our guests become Christians. I think all of us come from very interesting settings, right? And it's going to be important, I feel, for people around the world to hear how we get to know who Christ is from our very particular you know, locations. So could you share with us briefly how you came to know Christ? And also, you know, how did you enter into cross-cultural missions? I came to faith at the age of 16 in a church rally, uh, evangelistic rally. At that time, uh, my father was just um, starting out in his own business. He was an immigrant from China, so he set up a small book-binding business. We all worked for him like a typical Chinese family, 
And so that place was not too far from a church. And sometimes I walked by, I heard people singing and all this. And one of those evenings when I heard music coming out of the building, I went and sat and listened. The music and the singing was what first attracted me, not so much the message because I don't quite understand. But I went back every evening and on the third evening when the speaker shared the gospel, I said that man is really lost without Christ. And I was in that position. I was unhappy. I was lost. I was leading a life without purpose. And then something that the speaker said is, if you want to have a purpose in your life, commit your life to God and he will plan out your life and then you just trust him. So I recognize and first understood what is sin that separated man from God. I understand that there was no way I could gain any eternal redemption except by placing my faith in Christ. So the evening I asked one of the men in the room and said, look, I want to, I want to follow Jesus. And then he led me through a prayer of repentance and asking Christ to forgive me. And I was 16 at that time, and my life has never been the same. Wow, thanks for 50 sharing. years ago, 50. wow. <laughs> uh, now you know how old I am. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally. Yeah, were you, were you from any other religious background? No, we are not. We were not. So, and, mm. uh, but I was the first in my family mm. to come to faith, and my sister followed suit. And um, it took us more than 20-some years before my parents came to faith, and then my brother so now all except one family has given their lives to Christ. So what was your journey into uh, ministry and cross-cultural missions like then after this? Yeah, um, so as a young Christian, uh, new in my faith, I heard about a ship that went around the world to share the gospel. And then the ship was in town. And so I went to visit and that, that was the Logos. And my first encounter on the Logos totally blew me away. I saw young men and young women totally sold for Jesus. They gave up their career, their future. They all came together and worked as unpaid worker, believing that every man and every woman and every child should have the opportunity to hear the gospel at least once. And so I saw that it attracted me and I says, wow, Lord, I, I really want to be a part of this. And God took that feeble prayer seriously. So did you actually spend time yourself on the, the Logos or any of the other, the other ship? Um, yeah, I did eventually. Um, I had to finish my national service. And there a year after I completed my military service, the Logos came back and then I attended a missions conference and it reinforced my convictions and my calling. And so I signed up to spend two years in those days. It's only oh. two years. And um, <laughs> so I went on and they told me it was two years. But I eventually ended up what, 40-some years? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and not just on the ship, but now, you know, in you different, are, yeah, yeah. Doing, So to your question, Justin, I did, I went and spent my first five years on the Dulas, mm -hmm. and then the second five years on the Logos. Then I took a break, went to school, and then I came back again. So f five and five, ten years living on, on the ships. Uh, with the off. ships, but yeah. I don't actually, a good okay. part of my ministry was outside of the ship. I was trained in the whole area of advanced preparation. So when the ship visits a country, you know, I would have to go ahead of the ship and prepare the program. And so from preparing programs from the ship, now you're preparing things on a much bigger scale, right? So I think that's where we would love to hear your thoughts um, as a leader of a large missions organization on especially global missions in a post-pandemic world. Hmm. And you know, it sounds like you do have a wealth of experience under the belt. And I think this pandemic probably 
made you tap into every area of your experience and even taught you new things. So we would love to hear more about that. Yet, you know, is this whole world now truly post-pandemic? You know, we are hearing more and more outbreaks of communicable diseases such as monkeypox and variants of COVID. I mean, not every country is out of COVID yet, right? Like Singapore. Is it perhaps impossible then to speak of a post-pandemic world in a sense where the pandemic will one day be completely done away with. But from some scholars, right, removing the hyphen for post, you know, it signifies the persistent impact of an event. In this case, you know, the, the pandemic and a post-pandemic without the hyphen, post-pandemic world will be one that we will all be living in. So do you agree that the after effects of the COVID-19 pandemic are here to stay? And how would you see it has impacted the world, especially with regards to global emissions? I'd like to start by saying that I think it is safe to say that the world was anticipating some sort of a outbreak of a global level, like, you know, expecting a major viruses outbreak and all this, but not one of this magnitude. I think the sheer size, the enormity of this pandemic caught the medical and the governmental circles by surprise. I think uh, many, many countries, many people were thrown into the deep end of how to handle. I think the initial report that we received was really scary and so somehow it sort of paralyzed the world. And just as we are emerging out of this pandemic, I've recently read an article, cannot remember, but Financial Times, February, uh, January 19, had an article that said that the world is an anticipating another pandemic far greater than the COVID-19. Based on that, what I read and what I've seen and all that, I think uh, for us, the reality is that we have to live with the COVID as part of our existence, just like we live with flu, and we live with SARS. Those are viruses that we have no cure, but at least we have learned how to manage and how to cope and how to treat it. We in the mission world, we just have to embrace this reality and live with it and operate. One thing to bear in mind is that we should not be immobilized <laughs> by the virus. I think throughout the human history, viruses came and went, some much larger than what we're experiencing. And the world in those days are not as advanced as the world we live in today. And they manage to cope. And missions continue, if anything, and life continues as well. So I think it is at the backdrop of this reality that we just have to embrace that this is going to be the new normal for us. And we have to operate our ministry within the constraint of the new normal. So for you guys at OM, what are some ways in which immobilization of COVID has affected specifically the way that you as being Operation Mobilization goes about mobilizing and moving? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we are still learning how to navigate our way through this pandemic. And it has affected the way we do ministries. It has definitely affected a lot of our projects and our program, but it did not stop us. It is we, human race, that was immobilized or slowed down, but the Holy Spirit continues to work in so many aspects. My personal experience was um, we had in March of 2020 a major leaders conference in Thailand. When the whole news came out, in, uh, in January and February prior to March, there were thoughts of canceling the program. But we had air tickets were booked, 450 people have already uh, booked their places, all this. So what do we do? And um, we went to prayer. 
and we say let's trust God for the impossible and be radical. So we, I made the decisions together with the leaders that we will continue with the conference, but we give people the freedom to opt out if they have aged parents, if they have physical health limitations, please don't come. And almost 400 people came. And for the next two weeks after that, we were monitoring everybody's <laughs> health. And thankfully, no one got sick. Yeah. So we felt really yeah. vindicated <laughs> in some ways. But then came the major challenge, the lockdown. Mm. And so we thought it was going to be three months. So we thought, okay, we, we reprogram and reschedule for three months. And then the reality hit us that it's going to be longer than the three months. So the decisions to stop all OM events for the rest of the year, we had a program called Teen Street in Germany. 4,000 people signed up. It's a yearly thing. What do we do, you know, uh, except to cancel it? And then we have other training purpose and trips that I have committed myself to, missions conferences that I was to attend in Australia and other places. And it was like living day to day, week to week, you know, changing situations. And it was quite stressful. And we didn't have any blueprint prior to help us navigate through this mess. But I think our faith in God has helped us through. We, we did that. I just want to highlight a couple of things we did right. Yeah. We canceled all travels for OMS. And people were not happy, but looking back, it was the right thing to do because the government helped us. The world just stopped traveling. <laughs> so, you know, my decisions became easy. Um, but then we took a step of faith and said, let's raise money within the organization to support any brothers and sisters who might be affected by the finances in their ministry and in their personal lives. And we didn't know how long it will last. So we said, let's raise funds for a year. And that was a God-inspired courage because we took that step of faith and we raised um, from within the organizations and then friends and churches heard about it and they began to contribute. And we raised several million dollars and we decided to be generous not just for OM people, to help anyone who needed help. So every month we review the financial applications. All in all, we have helped in the year and a half more than 4,000 entities. Each entity could be a person, could be a family, could be a ministry. That was the thing that kept us going. There was no government help. I mean, every sector gets financial help, but not missions. And so we have to raise our own. And the Lord provided. And we were able to share that generosity with people outside of our organizations and help quite a few thousand people in the process. What I wanted to say is it was a step of faith as it unveiled. We responded in prayer. We responded in a practical way. And God honored that at least in my experience. And today, we came out much stronger. And another thing that affected us is all those missionaries on furlough couldn't go back to the home country, and they waited and waited. Eventually, they lost their church support and, and their financial support. And then they went back to secular work and went back to other church work, and then our, our staffing numbers were down. But now we are back to the 5,000 levels, and now with acquiring a new ship. And recently, plus the Logos Hope is being relaunched into ministry. We need a few hundred people extra on top of all the regular numbers that we have to help us staff the opportunity and the future. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And I'm just trying to imagine, right, for an organization as huge as OM, 
you know, for you to make such a huge decision compounded by what's happening in the mm. world, right? Were the changes difficult to be implemented? How long did it take to come up with this whole plan going into fundraising instead to support people on the ground? It's almost like this yeah. big structure that was sending out, you know, everywhere else. Yeah. Now it's like backed into a mm. singular location and then reaching the ground. That's right. Um, good point. Several years ago, I think we set up a crisis management team, the CMT, and they monitor crisis around the world. Mm. And I get regular report from them. And when the coronavirus um, hit the world, they were very much abreast with all the information and updates from around the world. And they constantly made recommendation. So it is based on talking to these people who also rec uh, recommended that we talk to some people who are specialized in this kind of situations. And then we receive advice from those people on what to do. But still, we have to make the decision. You know, I've learned in leadership that every decision you make, some people are going to oppose it and some people are going to like it. So the people that like it will relieve and rejoice in the decision. The people that don't like it, they, they will always you know, oppose the decision. And we had people who were not happy with the decision, thinking that, hey, this is a short term. Some people say, we live with flu in our country every winter, so what's a big deal? Well, all that are some of the things that we just learned to live with it. And um, again, in leadership, you just have to embrace criticism and try to answer everyone's concern as best you can. And that's what we did. In some ways, I find OMS very mature and easy to cooperate when it comes to crisis. You know, we recognize that, hey, we don't agree with you, but we understand the positions you take. So once you make the decisions, we'll work with you. And that's what I've seen. I'm pleased and very, very proud in the, in the sense that, that OMS are mature and made it easy for me and my leadership team when we undertook that decision. Yeah, thanks for sharing about that. You've mentioned a bit about how OM as a broader organization responded to COVID, and you've shared a bit with us about how um, you've made efforts to take care of people who are needing to take care of, uh, be taken care of in that season. Uh, one of the things I'm curious about is, despite the fact that maybe some people who would have been working in mission context overseas were back at home, couldn't come back, it doesn't mean that in those locations where people are already serving, that work isn't is stopping, right? I think we tend to think that when the church stops, then maybe mission stops too, because people can't go out and do things. But I'm sure that around the world, there are still people who have been serving in their context very faithfully and have been seeing things happen. So, so one thing I'm curious to ask you is, in what ways have, have you guys seen you know, growth in ministry, interesting movements or trends taking place on the ground, especially given that our audience is primarily an Asian audience and we're interested especially in what's going on in the Asian church. Are there any trends or any really interesting things that you can share with us about yes, that? Yes, de definitely, definitely. Um, we had to cancel face-to-face -face conferences and meetings and events, but we never stopped uh, in terms of our long-term program we went virtual. So all of us learned to operate in our Zoom and oh, yes. Teams and all that yeah. Skype. So, you know, some, <laughs> suddenly we, we are quite well versed with things that yes. we used to be afraid of. It's part of COVID, and, yes. <laughs> and appearing and uh, giving messages and teaching over what they call the virtual um, platform. We're now so used to it that we don't think about it. We mm -hmm. just do it. 
So that, that's a good side, the good thing that came out of the pandemic. It forced us to adjust, to adapt, and be agile. And I think the key thing for all of us in ministry is we need to learn to be agile and go with the flow of how the Spirit leads us. I'd like to share with you a couple of stories of what I've seen. Um, our people in Pakistan, in the midst of the pandemic outbreak in Pakistan, they decided that they will form food packages and bring them to a community that had for decades rejected them. They, they've been there, they tried to share the gospel, they were always kicked out. So this time they told the people that we, we're not here to promote the church or anything. We're here just to reach out to you. And so they reached out to the community and the community leaders came to the OMS and says, wow, in this time where we were abandoned by many people that we trusted, you are the people that came back to us. So you're always welcome. Through the ministry of Matthew 25, we saw that doors were open for our people to go and build a trusted relationship with the community. And now I understand that they have regular program in the community. And that's a baby step towards a long-lasting relationship. So that is one. Nepal. After we restructured OM and then we launched into a church planting movement, we felt the way to accelerate our program is to empower the local to do same and near culture ministry. So we train them, the locals, to do what they needed to do. And during the COVID lockdown, people from the far culture could not go back to the fields. But it is the people in the field, yeah. the locals, mm -hmm. that did the same and near culture ministry. And the work grew. In Nepal, uh, we have seen hundreds of people coming to faith in Christ during that two-year period, and many communities of Jesus followers were formed as a result of the work of these people. So that has taught me the need to accelerate same and near-culture ministry. We use digital, I mentioned earlier on, so digital platforms should be taken advantage of, and it should be scalable and make it accessible anywhere at any time. That would be another thing we have learned. So this same and near culture ministry approach is so interesting, right? How did OM come to identify this form of ministry? What are some ways that OM does to, to develop this ministry? Yeah, when we embark on our new mission statement six years ago, our new mission statement is we want to see vibrant communities of Jesus followers among the least rich. What it means is proclaiming the gospel sharing the gospel, discipling the people, training them, equipping them, and then sending them out to do the same. So for us to see multiple exponential growth of Jesus followers, communities around the world, we need to see, we cannot do it on our own. We recognize that we need to collaborate with other mission organizations and churches, but more so, we also need to train the local people to do that. Missions in the past used to be that we come in and we do all the work for the people. I think the missions for the future is we come in, we help build a local community, and then we empower them, equip them, and send them out. Um, because the gospel work is not for one particular group of people, but for the global church. So how do we do it? We began to recruit people, and we took down the requirement that they have to speak English. 
because someone from Nepal, if they want to join the OM, they have to learn English so they can communicate with the OM people. And then they go to Afghanistan and then they have to learn how to speak Afghan language. You know, so it's, it's like two hurdles to clear. So we bring that down. And we could do it now because thanks to Google Translate, so a lot of our things can be translated in the languages you know, quite easily um, to the people that we, we, we work with. So by taking that requirement down has allowed many people to join and be trained in the local context. Uh, materials were translated and made available. Our case now in um, Africa, in Lake Tanganyika, in Zambia, in Nepal, we see that in the Mekong region, and we see that in the Sahel region. The Sahel Belt in Africa is one of the most difficult and the least rich area. And now we're seeing a lot of people being reached with the gospel, not by foreigners, but by the local African uh, believers. So that, um, I'm totally convinced that the gospel is not for a specific group of people, but for the global church. Uh, that's a very good insight. I think one thing that people often forget is that most of the major revival church growth movements or places where the gospel has come in and really exploded, those types of movements have typically been led by locals as opposed to missionaries being the ones spurring those efforts. This isn't to say that missionaries aren't important in those efforts, but the ones who preach the gospel most effectively in context are the ones who understand that context and don't have to go through these kinds of extra trainings, as you've been mentioning. With yeah, in our case, in Nepal, in Lake Tanganyika, it was through the lifestyles of the people there that the, the local community said, oh, you guys are different. Mm. And so instead of trying to overwhelm them with the gospel, you know, they befriended them, mm. built a trust, and then introduced Christ to them. So we, we're not promoting a particular church, but we're promoting relationship with Jesus. And the people saw it, the local community saw it. Yeah, it's like a very upside down way of understanding the faith now, mm. right? It's before we get people in to belong. We usually have some requirements for them. Believe first and then, you know, look the part, behave the part, and then you can belong. And now it's kind of the other opposite, right? You're sending people who already belong to the community to make other people feel belonged to, right? And then reach them with with the good news. Yeah. It's like a Kind of like a tearing down of walls almost. It's interesting yeah. you say that because uh, about belonging and becoming. I've always challenged the OM people. Do we become first and belong or mm. do we belong first and become? The church today, and I'm not being critical to the church, but in general, the church today is you have to become a believer before you can belong to the church. But there are many people out there who are curious and they want to be a part of the church community before fully committed their lives. Yeah, and, um, and I think it works both ways. We, we need to create rooms for that. So, so in light of this idea of local missions and, and the locals being involved in this outreach efforts, um, what does uh, support look like um, in this era, in this season for OM generally, but also missionaries, especially in the time of the pandemic and post-pandemic, however we use that language? What does uh, support look like in that kind of context, given how things maybe are shifting and changing with regard to uh, what you've been sharing so far? I think prayer, of course, uh, it's a key thing. And if you all are praying, I think um, protection is, is another thing. Um, not just protection from people who are opposing uh, the work that we do, uh, protections for health and all that as well. Opposition from families, 
I find that um, many well-intended, well-intentioned parents and relatives are stopping people from going overseas for a longer period of time for fear that um, they may work in condition in places where medical facilities are not as easily available. I think one way the church can support us is to allow us to think and act radically, sometimes very much different from the normal status quo that the churches are used to. I don't know what that is, but I think something big has to happen uh, in order for us to gain more ground in the places where we work. So it might be a break away from the traditional way of doing things. Like one, one example is that I personally believe that the financial support structure for mission work and missionaries are outdated. Mm. It was something invented 200 years ago and has never been updated. Can you elaborate more about what's that traditional? Yeah. um, For example, when William Carey and Hudson Taylor went out into the mission field, there were few missionaries, but there were many churches. And so many churches could support a few missionaries out there. And they also come from places like UK and later on US, where the churches are financially much better off. If you look at the churches today, more than 50% of the believers around the world come from the majority world. Missionary populations, you know, we are going to see in a very few years, short few years time, that there will be more missionaries from the global south or majority world than there are from the global north. But the churches in the majority world, like in Africa, in Philippines, in Indonesia, and and all these places, are not economically well off Mm -hmm. to support a missionary, especially if the missionary is required to raise a Western support Mm -hmm. because they want to go overseas. So how do we reconcile that difference? And if we raise support for missionary locally, you know, let's say Indonesians, supporting Indonesian missionary to work in Indonesia, and we need to give them a decent amount of um, allowance so that they can support their families without the need to worry where they're going to find money to educate the children, school fees and all that. All that needs to come into play. One thing that grieves me a lot is when I attend international conferences with people from different nations and different um, backgrounds, you always see the separations of the haves and the Mm have-nots, even in the mission world, and the power and the powerlessness. Oh, we got to be more equal than that. And a part of that is changing the financial structure. For example, I am very willing to take bivocational mission workers. You know, if you come from countries where your church cannot support you, but you have the skill to make your living in a certain place, then I will say, come, join us, we'll place you, and then we will expect the person to live vibrantly in that community where their faith will spread. So that is not a traditional missionary structure, but I think there is a place in the kingdom of God and in the work of God for that. Yeah, in some ways, it's quite interesting also because being bivocational in that setting means that they will also be interacting with people on, on a much closer basis, so to speak, yeah. right? And and it's yeah. not only a religious thing that the, the other side would think that, you know, these missionaries are trying to do, right? It's not just, That's right. I'm just coming yeah. to want to pass you my religion, but mm. I'm, I'm here to live among you and gain that trust and... Mm. 
relationship, right? It's and really I think also part of the trend with the younger generation today is that they all want to take, they want to serve, mm -hmm. but they want to take their profession with them to serve. We need to broaden our boundaries in order to include those people. So if I can just maybe clarify and summarize. So are you saying that the future of support and finances in mission going forward is needing to move away from a sort of West giving to the rest type of a dynamic, but a slightly more ground level, self-supporting, supporting each other on the ground in those contexts kind of a model or what, what exactly? Yeah. No, I think the generosity of the West will continue. Yeah. It's in their DNA, it is in their culture, and we do not want to prevent them from of giving course. because yeah. that could be one way of expressing missions as well. What I'm advocating is that we need to help fields and individuals, especially those from the global South or from the majority world, to be less dependent mm. on outside money whether it is from the West or the East, uh, I think every team must be able to find a way to sustain themselves. That gives them dignity, pride. And also, unfortunately, if you look at all the advertising and missions work and in charity work, non-Christian charity work as well, you know, they basically do what the donors tell them to do. So for donor money, you know, they stray from their calling and they tailor the program in such a way that it will attract donor money. We cannot do that. And for me, emission work, funds and support come in as a result of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the donors. We cannot manipulate people to give. Um, that's not mission. So in the uh, introduction that Benita gave for you, she mentioned a bit about your work in spearheading agriculture and these kinds of programs. So this is part of what you're yep, talking about. Exactly. When I started this um, together with a group of believers in China, you know, we started this welfare center that will care for people who are physically and mentally challenged. And I approach OM for funding and OM says we don't have the fund to do something. And I have people to feed. So we got together, pray, and then the idea came and said, hey, let's do farming. So we started. And of course, again, the interesting thing about mission is when we started something without the expertise, God provided you know, he so he led someone to come and he was an agricultural professor and he reorganized the farm. And then that f not only fed the people, but allow us to sell the chicken and the pigs for some income to help pay for some of our staff. And that's what I meant. Yeah. So today, that welfare center is still existing. It is totally in the hands of the local believers and they are self-sustaining. We kept the friendship. I mean, I've been involved in 12 years with them and they have never approached me for a single donation. If anything, they were very generous towards us. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts uh, on you know, missions and how OM has been uh, so involved in, in reaching people on the ground. And I think even more so right now that we can't travel, it's, it's, it highlights that necessity for us to be equipping and develop lo locals who are there, who know the, the people be better than you know, any outsider would. Um, and so I think the, these are questions that we are also asking ourselves in Singapore Bible College, where we are currently recording this now. I'm still so like so amazed that we are all in person. Um, yeah, but you know, I think what you shared about uh, OM's vision, right? It's it's almost like the same. It runs parallel to SBC's mission, right? Which, which is to yeah. And, Glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, and I think we do have a lot of uh, missionaries who were in the field and want to go you know, out, you know, in the traditional sense, right? Uh, and we have a lot of deep ties with mission agencies. 
And so what are some areas do you think that theological education also needs to uh, rethink or address in response to missions? If, if I can add to that question. Hmm. So for us at a place like SBC, that kind of traditional way of thinking of theological education is that the seminaries and churches tell the people what missions ought to be and we're the ones instructing. But if we're really working in a partnership, dialogical way, the mission agencies have to be telling us, you know, what do people need to learn? How do they need to be equipped and trained and formed to be more effective in ministry? So we have a lot to learn from people like you who have ground experience and know what's taking place to be able to better form and train leaders for the future. So I'm quite curious as to, as to what you think about this. I think we are interdependent on each other. I think the mission organizations need the theological schools and Bible seminaries to provide the solid framework in a theological framework as we go and tackle issues and approaches in the world. Um, and then at the same time, I think Bible schools and seminaries can also benefit from the practical experiences that mission organizations has to offer. I personally am not familiar with the Singapore Bible College um, curriculum, but I hear many good things, and I'm a fan of Singapore Bible College. Oh, thank you. We try. We're trying. We send OMS to, mm. to, you know, to SBC, yeah. and we also recruit SBC graduates into OM fields. And um, so we like that synergy and like that relationships. Um, but here are some observations, and this is not just of SBC, but of the many seminaries and um, theological schools that I'm associated with. By the way, just want to clarify, I'm doing a postgraduate studies in one of the <laughs> theological schools. So, so I'm a student again. And um, I think that many, many people, many workers from the majority world find theological education out of their reach. Mm -hmm. One is the school fees are unsustainable. It's too high for Christian workers. And for, I, I feel for those people who really want to learn more formal education or theological training, but couldn't afford it because of the high school fees. And not just the school fees, it's the living expenses and all that. And then secondly, I also find um, that four years of education or even three years of education is too long for some people especially those people in the field. You know, unless you want to be a theologian, a teacher and all this, you know, do we have to study Greek and Hebrew and all that? You know, because how many of those actually practice that except those who are teaching on a weekly basis? Yeah, most people who want to have the training to make sure their theology is right and then they can take the training back and practice them where they come from. And if they're not going to be a theologian or a senior pastor and all that. So perhaps certain educations can face out to make the training shorter. They like OM. They come to us because we offer two-year program, more emphasis on the practical, but we also have biblical training on board our ships as well as in the OM fields. So they find that attractive. I think the emphasis in the training is more on how than the what. Many churches and many church workers that come from India, Pakistan, and those from China and all this, they already are pretty well grounded in their theological understanding. And um, so when they come, they are looking more for on the how, how to, how to do it, yeah, in the practical side. Can Bible school think that way by providing more exposure to practical training? 
I mentioned earlier on, the cost of theological education is not sustainable. Got to do something about it. I just want to say I'm not against theological <laughs> studies. I'm a student myself. But it's just that I think th things have to change in order to make theological training and theological studies more accessible to people from the global south. Yeah, it sounds a bit like the whole way missionaries are also funded, right? It used to be like churches that will fund and support a particular missionary. Then they can go out mm. and then they will they are funded by different churches, Christians. And then also when students come to seminary, a lot of them cannot afford it, right? And to go move overseas. And so they need church, their church to fund them, but their church may not be that rich to be able to do so. So, right? so how can we also you know, mitigate the... Yeah, I guess that's the, one of the things that we have to think about. Yeah. That's right. Uh, can, can we do hybrid teaching? Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Perhaps allowing the person to take a few classes online. And I mean, nothing beats a face-to-face -face learning. I find the, uh, what I call virtual learning a, a little bit more challenging. Uh, I like face-to-face -face interaction, so there is value in that. I don't know, the schools, I'm sure they have experts looking at it all the time, but they need to come up with a package. I just want to see more people train so that the quality of the gospel work is not compromised, and as well as the doctrine is not compromised as well. I can assure you that at SBC, we are working on that, and we are trying to offer these kinds of programs mm. for those in need, even in the future, online distance programs, as well as trying to offer low tuition and scholarships for those who come from countries where um, it might be a bit more difficult to afford that. So uh, there are people, not just us, who are doing these kinds of things to try to uh, equip people for the work uh, of God um, in the context of their yeah. And one more thing I'd like to add is that we need to educate believers in the whole area of tithing. I'm very fortunate. I come from a background where my church, my friends, my, my, the people around me are more than generous. We are supported and um, many projects that we introduce to them are well-founded. So these people are generous and they are giving a lot to the kingdom. But I think the body of Christ can do more. And it takes education, that's all. And people just need to know how and why they do it. And, and then we leave it to the Holy Spirit. I say this is because I travel so in so many places, and I saw that the pastors were not well supported by the local congregation, and the congregations were well off. And then I was told that you know historically they had missionaries that came and they were supported by their home churches, so they never taught tithing. And so when the local pastor took over, the church don't know how to give. He says, "Well, the missionaries don't need money. Why do you need money?" Yeah. And Anyway, if that is true with this yeah. particular group that I met, I think in general yeah. it can be, no, you know. What you say assume. is a good point. I think um, in this day and age, you know, when people say you have to depend on God and have faith, the way that God gives is typically through the church, right? So how is God giving to people and supporting them outside of the church? Where do you expect that generosity to come from unless it's within the church first? And I think in this day and age, given how... Um, People think about the economy and investment and all these things. There's a, a stronger need, especially amongst the younger generation, to understand how to 
view your material possessions as not your own, but to learn how to give generously as you have received generously. But I'm sure we can talk about this for another yeah. hour or so. so sure. Yeah. I like what A.W. Tozer said, be stewards of everything and owners of nothing. Mm. So everything belongs to God. And yes, I believe absolutely that God provides, but we need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we are prompted with an opportunity to get involved or to give, and then we held back. Well, on the topic of giving and generosity, we're very thankful for you, Lawrence. Uh, we know you're very busy and that you've given to us very generously your very precious time. So we thank you so much for joining us here today and, and chatting with us about uh, your ministry and all the various things God is doing through it. We hope to be able to hear more from you in the future and to see good things coming out of, of OM and hear good news about uh, work that you guys are doing all around the world. So we thank you so much. Thank you. And, um, and thank you again for the opportunity. It's no pressure on my time. So I'm grateful just to be able to, uh, to to interact with you both. Thank you so much for all your thoughts too. I know all these didn't just come out of nowhere. It came out with years of experience, of conflict, of dealing with people and, and working together with people. So thank you for you know giving us 40 years of uh, experience <laughs> in 52 minutes. <laughs> so once again, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you uh, next time. This has been Mosaic, a podcast by Singapore Bible College. Special thanks to Hilary Lim and Micah Singapore for giving us permission to use their music for our show. We would love to hear any feedback, suggestions, or comments that you might have, especially for future episodes. So feel free to contact us through our website at sbc.edu.sg. You can check out the website to discover more about our degree programs, events, and publications. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating, or tell a friend. Thanks for listening.